Well, it is my great pleasure uh, to be able to welcome everybody who's here back to another semester of the Monash Social Contract Research Seminars. Um, and it's my particular pleasure uh, to be able to introduce our guest uh, speaker this evening. Um, Gerald Moore studied philosophy and politics and uh, continental philosophy at Warwick uh, before completing a PhD in contemporary French philosophy at the University of Cambridge, which is where we originally met and why it's such a pleasure to be able to welcome him uh, this evening. Uh, he then spent two years teaching at the Université paris Crété uh, and three at the University of Oxford, Wadham College, uh, before moving to Durham uh, in 2012, uh, where he was appointed an associate professor in 2017, uh, before his promotion to full professor uh, in July 2020. Um, among Gerald's many publications, uh, let me draw your attention just to three. Uh, so in 2011, he published Politics of the Gift, Exchanges in Post-Structuralism, which was with Edinburgh University Press. Uh, and then in 2020, along with Martin Crowley and Ian James uh, and Bernard Stiegler, uh, he uh, published Thinking with Stiegler, Organology, Proletarianization and Technical Life. Um, and according to your website, Gerald, you have uh, a book forthcoming, uh, Bernard Stiegler, Philosophy in the Age of Industrial Technology. Is, is that still forthcoming as we speak? Uh, I've uh, barely started it. It was, it was due out in 2014. I, I have about 40,000 words uh, on the kind of stuff I'll be talking about today. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so fantastic. That, that will substitute for the contract on this book, on, on the Stiegler book. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, which brings us very neatly to Gerald's title for today. And just before I announce it, um, Gerald did say in the, the preamble just now and also previously in an email to me that, that, that he's very keen and so am I for this to be a very interactive session. Uh, so Gerald is very happy to be interrupted for people to ask questions and make comments as he goes along. And I, I would also encourage participants to feel very free to do that. Uh, and Gerald's title for uh, this morning or evening is States of Intoxication and the Limbic Capitalocene. Please join me in welcoming Gerald Moore. Thank you um, so much, Chris, um, both to you personally and to uh, the Social uh, Contract Research uh, Observatory. Um, I, uh, we, we started speaking again after about, uh, not, not that we were ha having a, an argument or something, we fell out of touch and then when I joined Twitter several months ago we started talking again and at first it hadn't really occurred to me that I'd have much to, to say to this um, seminar but, but, but increasingly it's, it, it's dawned on me that, that ultimately I am ultimately dealing with, with questions of the social contract, though um, questions that that perhaps come into play only um, much later in, in its evolution, which is to say once we've left the original dyad of, of uh, Hobbes versus Rousseau behind and are starting a, 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 to look at something a little bit more, more nuanced. And I guess the, the kind of question that's really of interest to me here, and it's the question with which I was working um, I was working on it with Bernard Stiegler in the run-up to his death, was really about what happened to the fabric of shared experience um, over the course, partly of history, but more particularly over the course of the last 50 years or so. Um, 
and I'll take a term from Jacques Rancière. I'm not going to go into this in any depth, but it's something I'll, I'll throw into play now so that we can come back to it later. Um, because it's not even exactly what Rancière is talking about. But at some point, Rancière in his uh, 11 theses on, on politics um, will talk about this thesis communis, which is a, a phrase with a, a long history going back to somebody like Shaftesbury in the, in, in the 17th century. Um, but what he means by this thesis communis is this kind of shared fabric of experience um, that we might say is the condition of possibility of commensurability of talking about ensuring that we're all talking about the same thing. Um, and yet, really what struck me so fundamentally over the last few years is that it increasingly seems like we don't have um, this shared fabric of experience, whether, that, whether that's down to the proliferation of, of media outlets that mean we're simply not watching the same thing anymore, um, or, or whether it's just that we've kind of seem to have moved away from a basic uh, goodwill uh, in, in speaking to one another, um, which we can link in turn to the dynamics of echo chambers and, uh, and filter bubbles on, on social media and the like. Um, but this idea that a shared fabric of experience has to be in, in place in order for the public to exist. And yet what we've got running counter to that is this fragmentation, this withdrawal of people into these privatized um, little zones. Um, what Bruno Latour, if I jump ahead a, a bit, will call the end of the, the shared world. Um, it's as though a significant segment of the ruling class is known today rather too loosely as the elites had concluded that the earth no longer had enough room for them and everyone else. And consequently, they decided it was pointless to act as though history were going to continue to move towards a common horizon to all the, a world in which all humans could prosper equally. From the 1980s on, the ruling classes stopped purporting to lead and began instead to shelter themselves from the world. We're experiencing all the consequences of this flight of which Donald Trump is merely a symbol one among others, the absence of a common world we can share is driving us crazy. Now, when Latour is talking about this, in many respects, he's talking about the growth of gated communities, of private islands, of the, of the black economy where people can so easily withdraw um, their money and into existence. Um, the way that I've tried to take this further is by um, thinking about addiction. Um, and this is a new, a newish angle on addiction. It's really, um, I'll come back and introduce my title in a bit more depth, but I feel like this is quite useful in terms of setting it up. Um, until relatively recently, we had this um, notion of uh, addiction as uh, this hijacking of the of the brain by certain kinds of addictogenic. Um, substances that, that simply took over our um, synaptic connections and, uh, and, and fundamentally uh, frustrated the functioning of, 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 our, of our cravings and the like. We've moved in the last 20, 30 years or so um, to the idea rather of addiction as a rational and adaptive response. That's a quotation from a Canadian psychologist called, called um, Bruce Alexander. Addiction is an irrational a rational adaptive response to a failure of environment making. In other words, once the real world becomes too, too, too stressful for us, um, addiction provides this possibility of a retreat into uh, some kind of oblivion, a withdrawal. Um, so we go back, that, that disease model of addiction was based on 
Um, what happens when you shove rats in a miserable little Skinner cage with a morphine pump? These experiments were done in the 1950s by, by Olds and Milner. And they discovered that if you put a rat in a miserable little cage with nothing else to do, it will just take morphine until it passes out. But these experiments were redone by uh, the aforementioned Bruce Alexander in the 1970s to the 90s, who, who made a rat park. He made a world for the rats in which they could do whatever they want. They could make, they could play, they could build uh, little houses for themselves. And in these circumstances where the rats had this meaningful possibility of world making, or what we might call niche construction in anthropological terms, the rats just leave the, the morphine well alone for the most part. They'll try it, they'll leave it. They're not that, really not that fussed by it anymore. And from this, we get an, an argument that's, that's really nicely um, uh, summed up by somebody like Natasha Dauschul, um, building on work by the psychologist uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who came up with the idea of flow, withdrawal into these states of immersion. When uh, and, and Shul will argue that, well, addiction, it's not about the high. Um, it's not about uh, the, the, the sense of winning. It's about this retreat into a privatized safe space. And I think this is exactly the kind of space, safe space that, that we're so obsessed with in, in, in debates around politics at the moment. The possibility of retreat from the stresses of the world into some privatized little niche of security where, uh, in the words of this uh, gambling addict, one can stay in the machine zone where nothing else mattered. So what we're talking about with the social contract is what is it that holds us in this shared space and prevents us uh, and prevents us from retreating back out into these privatized safe spaces. Now, I talk about addiction in this respect, but I'll make it clear. Um, I think one can be addicted and I we can put forward any kind of argument to sustain this, this point, neurological and otherwise, I think one can be addicted to absolutely anything here. Um, the, 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 the best uh, thing that my uh, friend, the late philosopher Bernard Stiegler uh, said to me at one point was that there comes a point when one has to stop doing philosophy and start being a citizen instead. And what he meant by that, he, Bernard was always aware that that anything, and especially philosophy, could just become onanistic if it wasn't constantly reinvesting itself in the production of social fabric. Anything that amounts to this kind of withdrawal from a, a shared space, that's this, this point when we start looking in terms of addiction. I think it's really interesting, and I've published on this in, in the past, um, I think we can absolutely look at something like um, Socrates, Plato's uh, Symposium, as, as being about this. I think Plato really invented uh, philosophy as a, a technique of addiction therapy, faced with a moment when you've got these massive changes uh, going on uh, in, in ancient Greece at the time. I would argue that they were due to the revolutions brought in by writing, which displaces the aristocracy, opens up democracy to, to, to the masses. The aristocracy lose their role in, in, in um, in the military, they lose their role in politics. What they, they do, they retreat into these little sanctuaries of the symposium, no, which no longer have that function of teaching oral culture because oral culture has been displaced by writing. And what do they do? They just get wasted the whole time. And so, and then that leads in turn to political insurrection because we see Alcibiades uh, taking out his plots there and so on. So it's about this withdrawal into a, a kind of privatized space of oblivion. 
out of the public sphere. And the big move that, that Plato will make is to see philosophy as a, a kind of technique as bringing people out of the private and back into um, a shared space. Now, so this is ultimately what I think our question is going to be. Um, the end of the shared world, the fragmentation of this um, public, uh, th this communist thesis, um, and the fact that we're all being narrowed down into what Peter Schlotterdijk would call these, these, these immunological, these juxtaposed immunological spheres that have now become broadly coextensive with the individual um, and nothing more, more beyond that. Now, I, I want to come back and situate this in terms of, of, of my title, uh, the, the rather clunky states of intoxication uh, and, and the limbic capitalism. What I'll build up to in a few minutes is the idea that um, recently put forward by the philosopher Edward Slingerland, that we cannot understand state formation unless we understand the role that intoxication played in that. And I'll come back to the, to the reasons for that in due course. Um, but at the same time, I think once we, if we, if we accept that, that, that intoxication played a role in, in, in state formation, I think we also have to see it playing a role in state disintegration or the fragmentation of the social contract. And I want to situate this in terms of what I call um, the limbic capitalist scene and debates surrounding both the, the Anthropocene and, and the capitalist here. Now, we've had a kind of long-standing debate in, in, in the environmental humanities around whether what we're living through is the Anthropocene, which seems to suggest that all humans are equally complicit in having brought about the rises in, 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 in carbon and, and, and planetary system collapse feeding into climate change. Um, the alternative debate put forward by argument put forward by Jason Moore, um, supported by um, others like Anders Malm, Donna Haraway and so on, is that we're living through a capitalist scene where it's ultimately capitalism that has brought about global warming. Um, the counterpoint to that is that, well, this looks like the elimination of human agency. Uh, we're saying that humans themselves aren't complicit and aren't, aren't the cause of climate change. It's these abstract structures of capital. Um, my attempt to resolve this is to talk about uh, the need to recognise just the extent to which we cannot separate, separate out the functioning of capitalism from uh, its impact on our um, neurology, the way that it interacts with a specific type uh, of, of human organism, one which is dominated by the reward system of the brain or rather the, the adaptation system of the brain, which will be uh, the, the dopamine system. We'll come back to that in due course too. The American historian David Courtright has talked about limbic capitalism, which is to say uh, the idea that uh, we can't understand capitalism without talking about its interactions with the brain, the way that it channels uh, desire, the way that it conditions us to want to consume, the way that it creates stressful environments uh, that make us consume as a, as a, as a, as a coping mechanism for dealing with stress. Um, and I think where this becomes interesting for me, uh, the question of uh, addiction is absolutely identical to the question of free will. I think when Plato poses the questions of free will, it's because he is sitting in these symposia uh, watching these obliviated aristocrats sort of lying all over the floor around him. Uh, he is living through an age of addiction. Um, and this is where the question of free will comes from. And I think here that the, the position I'm trying to move towards in terms of uh, the construction of the subject is that we have to see agency 
as constructed. Um, if we don't actively construct agency, it will lapse, it will, it will recede into or regress into these automated uh, habitual uh, behaviors of which uh, addiction um, may well be a very, uh, may well be the, the default one to some extent. But I don't mean, you know, as I said, we're moving away from this notion of hijacked brains here, and we're looking at very, very subtle influences. You know, we're not talking about people being uh, mind control and, 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 and uh, having all their agencies usurped away from them. We're talking about people doing something because they'd rather have a coffee than not have a coffee. Uh, we're talking about very gentle impulses here, which can nonetheless make a quite dramatic difference to um, the way that we behave. But I've jumped quite a lot ahead of myself here, so I, I, I want to come back. We'll, we'll, um, we'll come back to the basic questions of, we'll, we'll move on to the social contract and, and we can recontextualize this as we move on. So, let's briefly pass through Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari here, writing in uh, 1971, the fundamental problem of political philosophy, they'll say, is why do men fight for their servitude as stubbornly as though it were their salvation? How can people possibly reach the point of shouting more taxes, less bread? This for them is the question of the social contract. How is it that the masses are conditioned to desire fascism? Um, for Deleuze and Guattari, politics is ultimately the politics of desire. Now, this question has really nicely, although I suspect entirely unwittingly, uh, been reworked by um, Yuval Noah Harari, um, whose sapiens uh, I'm sure many of you will be um, familiar with. Harari poses this, this fantastic question of how on earth it is uh, that people could ever tolerate having gone through uh, the agricultural revolution. Now, the agricultural revolution in this respect, um, Harari will basically treat as being more or less coextensive with, with state formation and the social contract. We can nuance that, we can quibble uh, with the, the precision of that claim. I do think that he's more or less right on that point, though. The crucial question for Harari is that the agriculture, so, and we'll see that we can flesh out this position looking at people like James Scott and said, so someone like James Scott will argue that prior to the advent of states sometime uh, at the start of the, 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 the Neolithic period, the, the Bronze Age, um, we've got uh, people living intermittently productive lifestyles of where they might hunt for two or three hours a day. This is certainly the argument that Marshall Salins would have come out. They'd hunt for two or three hours a day. They'd have multiple ways of, of sourcing food, a very wide variety of food. They had better nutritional standards uh, than people did right up until at least the late 19th century and quite possibly longer. Why on earth would they sacrifice this? So the argument that will come out uh, from someone like Marshall Salins, from James Scott, which resonates with the kind of fetishization of the nomad that you get in Deleuze and Guattari, is that, that hunter-gathering really isn't the impoverished subsistence living that we, we tend to imagine. That being the case, why on earth would people have accepted uh, the agricultural revolution, where suddenly uh, people are spending all of their time farming wheat for a much impoverished diet, for all kinds of uh, diseases linked to malnutrition, bone disease, 
Uh, you've got massive rises in pests and, 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 and poor hygiene linked to the way that cattle and humans are living among each other, linked to, to mould in the crops and so on and so on. You've got much greater lack of environmental resilience because a plague can wipe out the, 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 the monocrop and so on. And this being the case, um, Harari says, why on earth would people have accepted to go through with the uh, agricultural revolution? We've got multiple answers coming from uh, across uh, the, the, the fields of philosophy and anthropology uh, here. You've got uh, the kind of analytic side, Kim Sterlney, Nicole, uh, Nicola Raihani, uh, whose name I've misspelled there, uh, coming out with a kind of, I think, fairly tired discourse. Doesn't mean it's wrong, just means it's a bit tired talking about the rationality of co cooperation and how that feeds into the division of labor and so on. Uh, we've got Deleuze and Guattari talking about uh, the role of, uh, of punishment and bodily inscription in, in basically uh, inscribing uh, collective identity uh, that overrides any notion of individual bodies, not that individual bodies were ever the default state there, um, but rather that the, the body of the tribe is created through these processes of, of, of social exchange and inscription, inscription. You've got someone like James Scott, who's arguing that the shift to the agricultural revolution wasn't voluntary, it was totally coerced. Um, and one of the ways that they did that was by basically bullying people into growing the kinds of crops that could be most easily taxed. Uh, and, and this makes people very visible to the state and, and, and easier for the state to, to control. You've also got a more interesting line of argument, I think, that, that, that emerges out of um, a, a kind of more biological take on, um, on, on, on the, the, the development of, 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 of the, the modern human. So there's a really interesting line that, that comes from the anthropologist Helen Leach, who argued that well, actually, once we start moving into the um, agricultural revolution, this is really a critical point for the self-domestication of the biologically uh, modern human. In other words, this is the point uh, where we live through, if we talk about the, the, the domestication syndrome, what happens uh, when humans uh, uh, start to... So uh, let, let me kind of rephrase that a little bit. The domestication syndrome, when all animals from oxes and foxes and uh, deer, dogs, cats, goats uh, have been domesticated again and all this is happening roughly at the same time about 15 to 10,000 years ago give or take. Um, all of these domesticating species go through roughly the same kinds of biological behavior. They become less reactively aggressive, uh, they thin out in terms of their bulk uh, and strength, becoming smaller in stature, you get a, a kind of flattening of the face, you have, you get the appearance of a little white crest on, on heads, not in our case, in the case of humans, but the same thing, neural crest development is thought to make quite substantial differences to our neurological functioning, particularly in relation to the, to the, to the dopamine system. Leach argued that this is the point of the Neolithic revolution, 
when humans domesticate, we self-domesticate, and, and many other species will self-domesticate too, we lose that basic aggression that would, want, that would make us want to pit ourselves um, quite so readily against figures of authority. In other words, we become much more compliant, uh, much less uh, aggressive, more tame. Now, someone like Richard Wrangham will say, hang on, this doesn't happen with uh, domestic with, with, with the agricultural revolution. This happens, the, the, the entirety of the genus Homo is really the history of self-domestication. The switch from Habilines about three million years ago um, up to Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans. Uh, this is all a history and you see some nice uh, charts following it here. You see that flattening of the face, uh, typical of gracilization. All of this is about the history of, of us becoming less uh, reactively aggressive, although just as uh, proactively aggressive as we've ever been, give or take. Now, um, I'll skip ahead a, a little bit because just because we've got that much longer history of human domestication doesn't mean that we didn't still get some really interesting changes uh, kicking in at about the time of uh, at about the time of um, the, the switch to sedentary living, living in big cities. And I, I, I should, should pause and qualify this a, a little bit. Um, it's argued that one of the things that's really significant about humans coalescing into living in larger settlements that are linked to sedentary ag agriculture is that for the first time, this will take, you know, we get that famous Dunbar's number of we can normally tolerate living in groups of about 150 uh, members of extended family. Once we move beyond that, things get really problematic and we start needing institutions to mediate and the like. Um, the argument would go, that, that once we really start moving into to settled living, this will be uh, a dramatic ramping up of, of the stressfulness of our living situation. Um, and this will be the time that we really start to need something like a social contract um, in whatever form that it took. Now, in a minute, I'll come back um, to the idea that actually there is a final set of biological changes that, that kicks in sometime uh, around uh, this shift into sedentarization, which is going to make us particularly susceptible to uh, addiction. But before we get there, um, let's kind of pause and look at one really interesting argument um, that, that, that comes into play here. And that is the beer before bread argument. So one of the standard questions that, that, that gets posed with uh, the agricultural revolution, uh, which came first, beer or bread? All of them made from wheat. Obviously, all of them become staples, not just because bread is quick and easy to make uh, and, and beer is hygienic in a way that, that water isn't. Um, there's, there's a bit more to it than that. So we've got people living in these very stressful circumstances, um, very poor diet and so on. Uh, it was long assumed that beer came into existence uh, made out of a surplus of wheat once they'd finished making the bread. Um, but there is a line of argument dating back to the 1950s that says, well, actually, if you look at the role um, that festivals of intoxication and, and ritual played, um, beer is what came first. Um, you know, we start with uh, intoxication and we move to the mass manufacture of intoxication. This is where uh, wheat and its domestication is going to come from. Um, 
In other words, we look to the role that the alcohol and the like played in, in making people amenable to settlement. We know that, so we go back to the idea of the brutality of uh, Neolithic living uh, in, in sedentary agricultural camps. And, and we know that certainly the people who made the pyramids in, in Egypt, the people who made Chatelhoyuk as well, um, got paid in alcohol. Was that to take the edge off brutal labor? I think there's some evidence that people in the, in the paddy fields of China at some point may have got paid to some degree in opium again, to take the, the, the really unpleasantly long hours of labor. To what extent um, are these, uh, these substances being handed out really buying compliance? And we come to this very interesting argument from uh, Edward Slingerland here. Far from being an evolutionary mistake, chemical intoxication helps solve a number of distinctly human challenges, enhancing creativity, alleviating stress, building trust and pulling off the miracle of getting fiercely tribal primates to cooperate with strangers. The desire to get drunk along with the individual and social benefits provided by drunkenness played a crucial role in sparking the rise of the first large scale societies. We could not have civilization without intoxication. And we might put this in a lovely uh, Deridian uh, formulation and say uh, that intoxication in this respect viewed over the course of history will become simultaneously the condition uh, of possibility and impossibility for civilization. In other words, it will be the de-stressor that will play a crucial role in the de-Darwinization the, relax the, the, the relaxation of selection pressures that allows us to, to band together and form units of collective identity without uh, killing each other. Simultaneously, further down the line, we can see how the same kinds of intoxication will also start to pull apart at that social fabric. Now, I mentioned, and we'll come back to this, um, that we've also got an argument that says at the same time, as uh, intoxication is going to become the condition of possibility of banding together in, in, in larger groups. We've also got the argument that one of the things that goes hand in hand with the, the human uh, uh, self-domestication syndrome is going to be that we become increasingly susceptible to pathologies linked to intoxication, most notably addiction, um, but actually there's a whole host of what we might nowadays call dopaminergic or hyperdopaminergic diseases from ADHD and Alzheimer's to Tourette's and depression. We'll, we'll come back to them in due course. We've got a really interesting argument from the South African uh, neuroscientist Tanya Calvi here on addiction as the price to pay for self-domestication. Now, here we come back to the idea. We'll start off with the idea that... Um, the Holocene, so roughly 12,000 years ago until whenever the Anthropocene officially starts, the Holocene has been marked by a really stable period in uh, our climate. Contrast that with the, the rapid fluctuations, the mini ice ages and so on, of the, the Pleistocene in which the genus Homo evolved. And an argument that comes out here is that the human reward system, the dopamine system, and I'll explain a little bit about what that is. So it is much less about uh, what we tend to, to, to classify as reward than it is about maintaining the possibility of, of flexible behavior. So the human dopamine system, and it's, it, we really find it variations of it in, in, in most larger mammals as well, um, 
the dopamine system is is what basically we, we need to distinguish between uh, wanting and liking here, or, or rather the argument that that, that that tends best to describe it. Um, when we find something uh, in the wild that triggers a sense of reward, it is the dopamine system that basically tags that as a memory telling us to go back to it um, because we found it rewarding in the past. Experiments show that if you sever the dopamine system in rats, um, they never learn how to eat properly and they will die of starvation. So it is basically the thing that encourages us to go out and seek, practice novel behaviours, seek things that may prove to be rewarding and reminds us when they did prove to be rewarding. Now, liking is decoupled uh, from craving in this respect because we know that the dopamine system, certainly in addicts, will encourage us to crave things even when we actively don't want them. So the alcoholic will crave alcohol even when they would like nothing better than never to drink alcohol again. It's because the neurological mechanisms are not identical. We needn't dwell on that too much. But we come back to this really interesting idea that actually, and so one of the, the, the ideas I'm looking to develop one ter long term, is that actually um, the, 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 the dopamine system is ultimately about, it's a mechanism of experiential learning. Sometimes we will see addiction described as pathological learning. I think it is just learning full stop. It is the brain's way of responding to the dominant form of stimulus. Now, if you're living in a very unstable Pleistocenic environment, uh, basically going to whatever food stuff is available, be that uh, fish or uh, shellfish which get dammed up in, in, in little islets, or be that hunter-gathering, foraging and so on, uh, the, being tagged with, with a reward is a very good way of of reminding you to go back to that thing that proved useful when you came across it last week or whatever it was. Now, once we move into the much more stable Holocene and, uh, and, and, and food environment, um, there is some evidence to suggest that we, we get a, a kind of depression of our environmental sensitivity here. In other words, we become uh, less immediately uh, liable to run off looking for novelty. We get a dampening of our emotional responsiveness, which goes hand in hand with not wanting to pick fights with anyone, everyone anymore. Really interestingly, we can see a long tail of that in people with ADHD, where it's suggested that they may well have a, an element of novelty seeking and a desire for physical contact necessary to trigger learning in them, which is simply not accommodated uh, in the much more restrictive environments of contemporary society, lack of green space, uh, lack of uh, rambunctious players, it gets technically called. And so people with ADHD may be a kind of throwback, well, not a throwback, uh, but they may be marked by a, the long tail of pre-Neolithic living um, that we've simply failed to accommodate in our uh, anti-neurodivergent um, uh, modern uh, societies. But anyway, so Calvi's argument here is that Neolithic artificial selection of, of genetic changes and, and changes too in epigenetic expression linked to the, the domestication syndrome may well enhance neurological processing, sensory motor and perceptual learning pathways, but also lead to neurodevelopmental disorders and psychiatric diseases. In other words, the, the, the very mechanisms that allow us to kind of move into society and, and, and successfully uh, uh, start living with greater numbers of people non-violently will also mean that we nonetheless have this capacity 
to to lapse into to to, to coping behaviours, stress managing behaviours, um, of which uh, addiction will be uh, a notable instance. And this will resonate really nicely with an argument from uh, uh, another neuroscientist now based in in, in Australia, uh, Fred Previk. Um, who'll talk about this shift that we get over the course of human history. I've scribbled out um, some little comments he makes about the rise of shellfish, because I think they're broadly acknowledged to be nonsense now. But nonetheless, Previk will argue that starting with this moment when we transition into, uh, in, into sedentary uh, society, cities and so on, we get this uh, increasing stressfulness of human societies. Um, where we will become ever more dependent on, on dopamine as a coping mechanism. So remember here that, that dopamine is going to be the, the, the trans neuroreceptor that makes us cling on to things that have proved stabilizing, things that have proved anxiolytic in terms of, uh, of, of stress relief. And as human society becomes ever more stressful, so we cling ever harder to the kinds of behavior or rather the kinds of things that we can consume that will take the edge off our stress. And I think we can put this really nicely in the language of Georges Congiem. Congiem defined health as uh, the ability to uh, withstand an ecological perturbation. Uh, or rather he'll put it more literally as um, our margins of tolerance for uh, inconstancies in the milieu. One of the things that we know about addicts is that they are remarkably good at suffering ecological perturbation. You can lose uh, your, uh, your wife, your job, your children, your family, your, your house, so long as you still have your whiskey uh, or your heroin. Um, of course, the real issue comes uh, once you lose access to your, your, your addictogen of choice. But up until that point, um, the consumption of something like alcohol or, or, or whiskey enables, really inures us um, to uh, in ecological perturbation. And we get this argument throughout that, that one of the things that we're seeing with, with, with addiction is that it becomes a technique of stress management. Over the course of, of increasingly stressful human history, Previk will argue, uh, we can see uh, dopamine taking on an ever more dominant role in the brain, crowding out other neuroreceptors like um, norepinephrine, uh, which we'd usually call adrenaline, uh, serotonin, which tends to be thought of as the happiness drug. And, and, so, and, and we get this rise in psychiatric disorders, um, peaking around uh, after the Second World War, when he'll say we shift from dopaminergic society into hyperdopaminergic society by depression, ADHD, uh, and so on. These are also the diseases that Catherine Malibu would talk as being diseases of the new wounded, uh, stress-related diseases, diseases of the body breaking down under stress. They're also what Byung-Chul Han uh, will, will, will classify as the diseases of a burned out society. I'll flag up, just because it's such an interesting argument, that one of the things that, that Previk will also say here is that dopamine is linked to all kinds of things that we might associate with the European Enlightenment. It is in related to increasingly abstract thinking. It is related to uh, spatial exploration. Uh, he will basically, he's probably going too far here, but it's nonetheless a fascinating argument. He will basically argue that the whole of the European Enlightenment, colonialism, uh, 
slavery can be seen uh, in terms of the increasing role that dopamine will play um, in the organization of our prefrontal cortex. Um, and where we can uh, link that in turn to the growth in pathologies um, like addiction. So just a quick recap at this point. So we've got this relationship on the one hand between intoxication and the role that it will play in the formation of a, a body politic by alleviating animosity between near strangers, by taking the edge of brutal labors linked to the agricultural revolution. We might make reference here to something like the carnivalesque uh, as well, or to, to Georges Bataille on, uh, on productive expenditure. But I think the real shift here is perhaps less with the nature of, uh, of uh, intoxication and more with the bodies on which that intoxication is acting. Now we start off with these collective bodies um, formed together uh, at the outset of the Neolithic revolution. What we will see um, play out over the course of capitalism is that gradually, um, you know, initially we see the emergence of institutions that will, will, will lessen the need for, for rituals and festivals of intoxication. Um, but over the course of the last couple of hundred years, we also see the de-Darwinization of society. In other words, the, the institutions that existed to take the edges off the stressfulness of society uh, give way to that kind of neoliberal emphasis on the individual, bearing individual responsibility for, for whatever befalls them. And as these institutions start to degrade, we start to see uh, increasing uh, recourse again to uh, addictive modes of behavior that take the stress off um, environmental perturbation. I think what's really interesting here is that we can see the uh, entirety of the history of capitalism uh, playing out around. I, I, you know, when I came up with this uh, idea a couple of years ago, and I've talked about it extensively in um, a book called Bifurcates, so I've got a 50 page chapter in there on, on just this idea. Um, we really can see the history of capitalism beginning with spices before moving into sugar, coffee, tobacco. Um, we've got alcohol in there at various points, two of different varieties up through opium in the 19th century to television and digital screens. We can, we, you know, you, you think just how massive a, a role sugar and coffee played in the restructuring of the world and then opium and so forth further down the line. It's really not, uh, an overstatement to say to talk about just how far capitalism was organized and determined around uh, the cultivation the domestication of various addictogens and and indeed we can see what what Donna Haraway and Anna Singh will call the plantation has seen this dramatic reordering of, uh, of of biodiversity and the like largely playing out in terms of the, 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 those cultivars you know we've we've got these shifts over the course of history that we can see playing out the, the, the shift from uh, you know the, the the alcohol intoxications of the of the pre-accounting era once we move into the enlightenment um, and you can't get away with being drunk all day bookkeeping and industrial machinery will deal far better with 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 caffeine and, and, and cocaine and so we get a shift to to those instead and then upwards into the 20th century I think digital screens televisions are just a new mechanism of delivery uh, but nonetheless have more or less exactly uh, 
the same uh, effect. And I would argue, actually, I think one of the points I want to end up on today is, is really suggesting, and I'll get there in a couple of minutes, that we have to see fake news as being really the last stage in this history of limbic capitalism, or what I call, call dopamining, where we've got this coupling of stressful environments, the, the, the production of stressful environments, and the, and, and, and the kind of channel, channeling of, of cures for sale into a very narrow range of, uh, of, of things to consume to take the edge off that stress. So I'll resituate this around a, a, a quotation, and I'm very much driving towards a conclusion in the next couple of minutes here. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of begin the beginning of the end with this quotation from Wolfgang Streich, How Will Capitalism End? What keeps an entropic, disorderly, stalemated post-capitalist interregnum society going in the absence of collective regulation containing economic crises, limiting inequality, securing confidence in currency and credit, protecting labour, land and money from overuse, and procuring legitimacy for free markets and private property through democratic control of greed and prevention of oligarchic conversion of economic into political power? In a world without system integration, social integration has to carry the entire burden of structuration as long as no new order begins to settle in. The desocialized capitalism of the interregnum hinges on the improvised performance of structurally self-centered, socially disorganized and politically disempowered individuals. Four broad types of behaviors are required of the users of the post-capitalist social networks for the precarious production of their entropic social life, bestowing resilience both on themselves and on an otherwise unsustainable neoliberal capitalism, summarily and provisionally to be identified as coping, hoping, shopping and doping. Now, there is a real mouthful um, in that quotation, so let's try and break it down a little bit. The name of Streich's book, How Will Capitalism End?, is a bit misleading here because his argument is that capitalism has already ended insofar as it no longer provides a coherent set of responses able to deal with everything that comes in its way. He argues that we're living in a post-capitalist interregnum where the old has died but the new has not yet been born and where what we've seen is the disintegration of the strata of society that were able to function as shock absorbers uh, preventing individuals from bearing the brunt of, uh, 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 of social ills. Um, we come back to the, to the argument made by Bruce Alexander right at the start here, where Alexander will say that addiction is basically a substitute for social dislocation. In other words, when we're no longer properly able to be integrated into society, and that integration was very much the function of rituals of intoxication, um, once you've no longer got those institutions of integration in play, this is when people will resort to addiction as a coping mechanism. And this is indeed what Streich says will happen. We're seeing it happen. Uh, we've got widespread social breakdown, the coping mechanisms that people resort to for dealing with the entropic social life of the post-capitalist interregnum. We've got coping, hoping, doping, and shopping. Well, coping, is muddling through, hoping uh, is religion in various forms, and he doesn't only mean monotheistic godly religions there, he could mean the cult of celebrity just as easily, uh, doping and shopping. Well, I'd suggest that actually kind of all those are, are really much the same thing. We know that addiction is a, is, a, is a coping mechanism. We know we've got plenty of evidence of the addictiveness of the cult of celebrity, you know, obsessively uh, reading, watching programs about uh, celebrities doping, dosing ourselves up with whatever it takes to keep ourselves going and shopping. What is shopping if not 
a kind of retail therapy um, linked to consumption addiction, and we can link that quite straightforwardly to, to climate change too. So we've got then uh, this uh, collapse of the integration of, of, the, of, the, of the, the, the rituals, the, the institutions that had this function of social integration, um, and which means that we're increasingly relying on these various addictogens over the course of capitalism uh, to keep us functioning, to take the edge off the stressfulness of, of labour. We can map that onto Peter Schlotterdijk, talking about the thinning out of immunological spheres, so ultimately we're left with uh, individuals forced to, to deal with their own stresses in whatever way that they can. Um, the point on which um, I think it would be interesting to end here is to, to pose the question of, well, if one of the things that's, that's really preoccupying us politically at the moment is something like fake news or the breakdown of the possibility of political consensus and even political commensurability, um, how far can we look at that, that question of the disintegration of the social contract in terms of addiction? And I really think that you can. I really think, in other words, that we need to see um, fake news as having exactly this kind of, uh, uh, of therapeutic effect as retreating through heroin into these, uh, say, or through the gambling machine or through the world of Minecraft into these safe spaces where the world around disappears and where one is simply uh, flattered and, cor and, and corroborated in being told whatever it is that one wants to be told to take away um, those stresses. Again here, the, the dominant logic is not one of, of necessarily thinking about addiction in terms of mass intoxication, but rather thinking of it as a route to withdrawal into kind of some, some secure, safe space uh, where one can exclude the stresses of the outside world, insulate oneself against the effects of um, social breakdown. But we come back then to this question of what's happened to the shared fabric of social life. Um, and I think once we get to the incommensurabilities of, it, of, of uh, the world of fake news, where we simply got no prospect, it seems, of, of, of speaking to one another constructively, then we end up in this vicious circle where the more we retreat into these safe spaces of oblivion, uh, of safe spaces of being flattered in what we want to be told, the harder it comes to step back out of them, uh, to reconstruct some kind of uh, shared public sphere. But this was always the big question that dominated uh, institutional therapy in the 1950s. How do you, do you uh, treat people for addiction in a way that leads them back out into the public sphere without simply reconstructing the circumstances of addiction. One of the things we know about institutionalized rehab, indeed one of the things that we know about a, 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 Alcoholics Anonymous, is that they've got massively high rates of recidivism. Why? Because you bring people up in this culture of abstinence, you, you put people in these, uh, th these secure institutions away from all temptation. In other words, you reconstruct that kind of withdrawn safe space, and yet as soon as people uh, get you're merely reconstructing the conditions of addiction there as soon as you try and put people back in the public sphere they immediately re re resort to the, the the props on which they relied to keep them going um 
so where does that leave us? Um, do we need to uh, bring some dimension of addiction therapy uh, into uh, questions of how to reconstruct the social contract? Yes, I think that's exactly what we need to do. At the same time, there is a track record of addiction therapists attempting to do that. It has backfired really quite spectacularly um, for reasons that we can go into in, in more depth in the questions. Okay, um, I better leave that there because I'm, I'm aware that I may have uh, been uh, kind of patchy enough in my, and incoherent enough in my coverage to mean that we've got lots of gaps to fill in. Um, we can do that uh, starting now. Thank you very much. Thank you ever so much, Gerald. Uh, please join with me in uh, uh, thanking Gerald for that immensely rich paper to which I, I fear um, the amount of time that we've got will we'll barely begin to do justice. Um, Gerald, are you able to stop sharing your screen at this point so that we can yeah. all um, see each other? Um, can I invite people that there, there um, a good number of us to not have to meet to mediate things, I think. Uh, if, if you have a, a question or a comment, do feel free just to illuminate your video uh, and go for it. Do, do be aware that um, a, a few of you, and I apologize for this, I don't know how it happened, are still named Chris Watkins. So I, I won't be able to call on everybody by name. That seems to be the default name that was given to everyone. So if you do want to change that, um, uh, that might make things a little a little more personal. Um, let me let me begin, Gerald, by, by uh, asking a question of my own and allowing other people time to, to, to formulate ideas. Um, it, it's in relation to, to something that you said early on, um, that we've moved away from a basic goodwill in speaking to each other, which I think in, you know, in, in many ways is, is simply uncontestable. But I do want to push a little bit on that idea. And I, I, I want to try and get clear in my own mind when was that that we had goodwill in speaking to each other was there ever a universal shared world that was then subsequently privatized um and you know, I, I was trying to think well would it be pre-industrial revolution i was thinking well society was incredibly fragmented people wouldn't know what happened you know 15 kilometers beyond where they lived at that point you know the hobbesian world is not shared Rousseau has to go through extraordinary gymnastics to come up with a polity that shares its goods. When did we have political consensus? What, what is it that we've lost? Or are we in turn in danger of projecting this sort of Edenic past um, from which we have supposedly fallen? This is a really interesting question because, of course, if you go back to Claude Lévi-Strauss, he would say that Neolithic society, although he's making inductions based on um, the number claret and the like, you know, he's got those famous maps that show that the number claret basically live in entirely distinct overlapping villages. You know, my Durham is not at all the same Durham as, as that of other people who live here, who never go to the university and, and so on and so forth. Um, what, we've, what we've alternatively got perhaps is non-conflictual non overlapping living arrangements, where we, we, we're not so much sharing a space as, uh, or we're not so much sharing a world as non-antagonistically non sharing the same space. Um, and I guess the question that comes up from this is, um, how much is, is it really just the case that with globalization and, and media, we're just more aware that we're of the incommensurabilities that there were, were there all along? Um, you know, I don't really believe that back in the 1950s, just because people wore hats, 
facts and spoke of politicians very respectfully. I didn't really believe that they thought that all politicians were, were acting in their best interests. Um, I suspect they just thought they were sufficiently disempowered uh, for it not to be their place to contest that failure to act in their interest. Um, and so I guess that the, the differential here isn't so much one of uh, a loss of um, harmonious sharing as an awareness of uh, a lack of sharing uh, that suddenly means that things that were once deemed uncontestable now get contested. I think that's a really interesting point. How far did this, um, this thesis communis ever exist? Maybe it didn't, but there was certainly been a shift in the dynamic about how we react to that. That's an, a nice way of putting it. Um, yeah, I think that's worth following up. Wonderful, thank you. Gerald, uh, John, I believe has a question or comment. I do, thank you very much, uh, Gerald. Um, I enjoyed that. Uh, I just wanted to come back to the Spinoza quote, which comes up indirectly later in, in Scott, uh, of course, uh, voluntary servitude, volontaire, is from La Boissy. Um, and La Boissy, one of the sources for that was precisely, uh, for that term, was precisely Plato's Symposium, where um, uh, Plato uses the term ethelodulea, uh, willing servitude. Um, so that links up kind of nicely with what you were saying about, uh, about Plato and what's happening in, uh, in Plato. My question is this, really, that Spinoza, brings out one of the underlying, rather kind of startling uh, aspects of what Lagoisi is saying, that people not only uh, uh, will their um, uh, servitude, but they, they fight for it as though it were their salvation. And that's really what I wanted to, to, to ask you about. And, you know, one could say that um, the, the form social contract that we're seeing in the light of uh, voluntary servitude is people willingly desiring their own servitude if they have a strong man in charge and you know that you know where the social contract has been therefore replaced by the discourse of the strong man and i just wondered if you could kind of comment on that notion you know it's another way in which the social contract has been distorted or warped or disappeared in uh, in in some form but in this case it's been displaced onto somebody it's a, a really interesting idea there is that we could substitute strongman for heroin or a bottle of, of, of wine. In other words, it's that abjuration of agency to the heroin that makes one's decisions for one. Um, I think that that's really interesting because, as I say, exactly the same logic would seem to play out in terms of addiction. What one is looking for with addiction is actively to be able to seed one's uh, role in decision making. It is the anxiety of living uh, from which one is seeking to withdraw. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of prosthesis of agency becomes either the, the strong man or, or, the, or, or, or the syringe or whatever it is. I, I hadn't thought of it in, in, in quite those terms, but it, it, it works really nicely. Um, and I guess it's, it, it's again that question of um, the desire for simplicity or the desire and, 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 I, and I think to some extent it does come back I don't have much faith in uh, Dunbar's number you know the idea that we're all much happier um, in, 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 in villages of 150 people where we were all related 
but questions of locality or keeping one's life to a certain scale and set of de decisions before which it becomes unmanageable. And once you go beyond that, you really just want to do whatever you can to, 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 to delegate that to somebody else. Mm -hmm. A nice way of putting it. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thanks. Um, thanks for the talk. That was really uh, fascinating. Um, I'm really out of my area here, so sorry if this is a bit naive. Um, I, I guess I was just I was worried a bit at the start of the talk about the difference between intoxication and addiction, and you, you clarified that later. Um, but there was some kind of talk of addiction happening, say, in ancient Greece, which I'm you know um, I'm not saying that's incorrect, but I think our, our modern concept of addiction is you know, quite specific in ways that wouldn't have, uh, it, that, you know, that it would have been thought about quite differently in that culture. And uh, anyway, so in, in relation to that, I guess I'm just wondering about um, the way that the modern concept of addiction has developed and you detailed some of that. Um, so one thing I was, uh, I guess my question is just kind of, is this useful for you? Um, something I was reading about lately in some sociology was this idea that um, in, in that part of the pathologization of addiction where we actually see it as a pathology um the way that we do now relates not just to the well in, in capitalism we have we, we are expected to be good consumers um but we, we also need to be good producers and the way that capitalism the way that our societies are the way that that well the way that production is done now is done in a way that we generally can't be intoxicated while we do it and that wasn't necessarily always true. I'm, I'm not sure if quite of the truth of this. I've, I have read some sociologists who seem to think that in the past, you know, a lot of people would have been slightly intoxicated throughout the day and in certain kinds of work, you can get away with that. And then the industrial revolution comes along and suddenly you can't because you might fall into a threshing machine or something. Um, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, my question is just, does that, well, I guess there's a question about, do you know if it is, would you agree with that as a kind of empirical, yeah. idea that intoxication was a common thing and also does that I feel like that could help your account but I'm, I'm a, exactly. a really interesting um shift that happens so does, does anyone know the first instance of the, the the term addiction being used in English I say anyone I'm testing Chris to see if he knows the answer it's in the King James the fourth bible uh, where one is addicted to God and, and addiction has an entirely positive connotation um, that means kind of loyalty and subservience, and and it retains this positive this this duly positive and negative uh, connotation. So curative and uh, and toxic toxic simultaneously, um, up until uh, certain maybe kind of arguably the aftermath of the Opium Wars, and it's very much debatable how much uh, our, our story about them is accurate, but things really appear to change decisively with the war against drugs in the 20th century when suddenly addiction gets pathologized as this uniquely bad disease. But I think one way that we should read that is by saying that, well, why are we looking to pathologize certain kinds of addiction? It's because society remains fundamentally dependent on others um, and it just chooses not to classify them as addictions in the same way. So, um, to what extent is contemporary society totally addicted to coffee? I just think it's unquestionable. Um, most of us sleepwalking through the day completely exhausted without uh, you know, that kind of little top up. Um, 
the digital economy is dependent on um, social media addiction and the like. Um, you know, eighty percent of profits in the gambling industry are from problem users. Um, so we still have uh, a kind of disavowed uh, addiction as the as the motor of contemporary society, and yet where the pathologization of certain kinds of addiction as being bad. Um, and this is where the disease model becomes so um, sticky and persistent because we want to be able to say, no, heroin is addictive in a way that coffee just isn't. Although we all know that, you know, you look at the effects of coffee on the brain, it's probably worse than pure heroin. Um, um, and so there is certainly this political discourse surrounding addiction, what gets deemed good addiction and bad addiction. Now we don't have um, the problem of people falling into thrashing machines um, and cotton spinners anymore. Um, but we certainly have a culture of um, addiction. I think they recently did a test in the British House of Commons and found out that there was uh, substantial traces of cocaine in every single lavatory in the House of Commons. Um, we know that there is uh, serious issues with cocaine and uh, speedball. I think speedball is a combination of steroids and or, or, or um, uh, crystal meth and uh, uh, and cocaine in the city of London, where people are working these insane hours. Um, and indeed, it's been argued quite, uh, not particularly empirically, but quite funnily by Francesco Berardi, um, that really that the whole financial crash mirrored the crash of the kind of cocaine habits, the speedball habits of the people who were working in, in finances. It has been argued elsewhere quite powerfully um, that actually the whole dynamics of risk taking. Uh, that we get in the financial system and as dependent on speculation as it is, are powered by levels of risk-taking and inurement against the risks of risk-taking that could only uh, be functionally working if people were basically uh, off their faces when, when, when they're making some of these decisions. Um, so I think we do have a, a kind of much more interesting and, and, and complicated story um, going on there, certainly about the, dis the disavowal of addiction, certainly about um, the uh, politicization of it. I think one of the things that I've, I've written on um, is the idea that, um, so in the, in the past, you go back to the kind of um, publishing revolution in the 17th and 18th centuries, and you did have people being described as being addicted to books, you know, leserlust in German, or people losing themselves in books. You look at the French novels like Stendhal, where um, the, the fear is that these these naughty readers will go off and consume books into oblivion and get their heads filled with ideas. And and actually, I think Madame Bovary has to be read as a novel about addiction, where some massively bored and miserable um, housewife goes off, gets her head filled with uh, bourgeois fantasies, withdraws into this private space ends up getting into debt and prostitution and ultimately dying from book consumption. Um, and I think that at the time, it was quite easy to read these as being parodies um, of addiction, but in the same way that we can read so much of digital uh, addiction as a parody. And yet we know that there are people who will allow their babies to die because they're too busy feeding a Tamagotchi. You know, there are registered instances of this. Um, and so actually, you know, looking back at Madame Bovary from the standpoint of uh, social media abuse nowadays, can we not see that book addiction really was a thing?
um, and can be given the same kinds of diagnosis, which isn't to say induces necessarily the same types of behaviors. Um, but I certainly think that we can see addiction as being a constant presence in a way that has been substantially disavowed. Thank you very much indeed, Gerald. Um, does anyone else have a comment or a question at this stage? Before I jump in again, well, let me let me use my prerogative and do that uh, at this stage, if I could. I it it sort of builds on what you were saying just then, Gerald, and and what Mary's question was um, touching upon as well. Um, uh, this idea that anything can be addictive. I think those were the words that you used at, at some point in the presentation. And th that led me to thinking, well, hold on then, is there, is there any such thing as a non-addicted state? Or is, is addiction simply a synonym for existence here, you know, sort of homo deditus or, or something like that? And then to, to, to move from the, that as an individual diagnosis to a sort of a, to, to try and socialize that, is it, is it then, could we say, would there be any merit in saying that the social contract itself either is or relies on a sufficiently stable state of addiction in order to, to function? Um, and and if, if there is something in that, then that, that would be really interesting in terms of the critique you often get of the social contract, which is that it's terribly simplistic. And, and it would sort of mean that, well, that's, that's the point. You know, addictions are simple. The Tamagotchi is simpler than a baby. That's mm. why you feed it, because it's predictable and you, you, you can master it in a way that you can't master a baby. And, you know, I, I guess then the question, well, but is, is that what the social contract is doing with society, providing us a Tamagotchi of society, you know, that, that we can focus on and, and, and avoid the complexities of, of you know, the messiness of life? And a really interesting way of putting it. So starting off with this point on addiction, you, you've, uh, sorry, on simplicity, you've, you've just brought to mind, I think. So one of the arguments that Bernard Stiegler put forward in his very last books called Capel Compense, or What Calls for Thinking, Curing, Salving, um, was the idea that science has lost its therapeutic function. Um, and I think that that needs to be elaborated to say, well, actually, one of the reasons that fake news um, is so effective is because it has this simple therapeutic value um, that science doesn't have because it's simpler than science, because it either because it tells us stories, accessible stories in a way uh, that pro provide relief and comfort that science can't, especially when science can't offer us comfort, it can only give us truthful uh, depictions of what, whatever miseries await. Um, but then stepping backwards a bit. So is addiction a default state? Well, so I, I guess the point there, can one be addicted to everything? Ultimately, what one is always addicted to is dopamine. One gets to a point where one is craving whatever it is that will release dopamine into the brain in sufficient doses to uh, to, 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 to trigger up some kind of, uh, of anxiolytic uh, relief. Um, anything, and this is a quotation from Norman Doidge, the neuroscientist, anything of sufficiently high emotional intensity can, can trigger dopamine release into the brain. Um, we know that someone with OCD polishing door handles can bring about that kind of relief. Um, it's really interesting. If you look at um, 
at the etiology of something like anorexia or bulimia um, in, in, in the diagnostic of statistical medicine, they will say the difference between anorexia and, 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 and addiction is that anorexics, are, well, addicts are addicted to a thing, but, but what anorexics like is, is not a thing, it is nothing. And you think, well, this is a, a nonsensical distinction. Ontologically, it simply doesn't hold up. What you clearly have there is that, that not eating triggers the same level of dopamine release as heroin or whatever. So I think in time that those kinds of distinctions will dissolve too. Uh, and, and we know that, that, that pretty much any kind of behavior will uh, can be harnessed in a way that it that, that provides, uh, you know, you've got someone like uh, Winnicott will talk about the child being addicted to their soft toy, their transitional object. And anyone who's seen a child, anyone who saw me lose my Garfield in a French village in uh, 1984 will know exactly what is meant by that claim. Um, but does that mean that we're automatically always addicted? Well, not necessarily. I think where addiction becomes uh, really starts to kick in is when um, you're craving a particular thing to the detriment of everything else. We get this effect of uh, the, the kind of narrowing of um, our, our responsiveness to stimuli to the point where we'll only respond to this particular thing rather than anything else. Um, and indeed, one of the things that's now argued in addiction studies is that um, actually abstention is counterproductive because when you abstain from drinking alcohol, all you do is reinforce the, the same synaptic circuits that, that tell you to crave alcohol in the first place. So abstention actually strengthens the, the craving. And the, the thing to do instead is to bombard yourself with counter influences. So you go running, you take up a language, you play a musical instrument. Um, these things create what Stiegler would call these quasi-causal attractors or alternative points of stimulus that we try from which we try and wrest ourselves out of this vicious narrowing circle of craving can we find instances of people who've got some kind of perfect neuronal balance where they've got so many activities going on um, that uh, they don't get pulled in the direction of one over others well um, gets a bit complicated because we do know that neurologically love is addiction the ultimate withdrawal symptom is having your children taken away from you. And this is what the, 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 the mechanism for addiction is basically born of an exaptation of, uh, of craving one's children. Um, so it gets tricky on that point. Um, but as I say, when we're talking about, um, when, if we, I think a much better example um, as a model for addiction isn't, it's not going to be something like heroin, it's going to be something like tobacco. Now we know if we look at studies from Vietnam in the 70s that all these soldiers who had access to pure heroin for the duration of the war go back to the States and only one in ten of them ever use again. So we know that take people out, you change the environment sufficiently and the cravings will just go. People call, you know, spontaneous remission has a 50 to 80% success rate compared with Alcoholics Anonymous, which is about 5% success rate differentially. Um, so we don't need to think of it as being just hijacked in this irretrievable state of dependence. We can come out of it quite easily. We just need, we just need to, maybe, maybe the way to think about it is that 
addiction becomes this kind of lapsing into a default state of, of comfort um, from which we need to be coaxed to, towards the alternative. What does that mean in terms of the social construct? contract? Well, I guess that insofar as the social contract becomes a kind of easy default mode of existence, then we'll, we'll lapse comfortably into it. But what we start to see now is that it becomes an effort. It becomes a work to kind of bring ourselves back. So here's maybe where we need to say, one of the things that Stieger would always say is that, is that we have to recognize that addictions are not uniquely bad. They are pharmacological, which is to say they are both therapeutic and toxic. Now, I was never entirely easy with him saying that because he was a monstrous work addict who was totally oblivious to the effect of his work addiction on everyone surrounding him, which is to say it was destructive. Um, but he was nonetheless right. You know, Mozart was addicted to his violin or whatever instrument he played. Leo Messi was addicted to his football. This is how we get to the point uh, that people are entirely e at ease and, and concretized in Simondonian terms around the, the, the object of, of their addiction. And it and opens up massive possibilities of productivity here. Um, so we can see a, 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 a therapeutic potential in addiction. Would there be a way of kind of channeling addiction in a way that brings us back to something like a productive social contract? I think that's a really interesting, if we put that back in the context of, of, of climate change, how is it that we are clinging so hard to a model of society that actively makes us miserable and ill? Um, you know, we go back to something like the, uh, um, to the power cuts of New York in the 1990s, when suddenly you'd think this catastrophe happens, everyone should be miserable, and yet the birth rate shoots up, and suddenly pe people seem to be very happy. If we were able to get this brief moment of interrupting that vicious circle of consumption, could we get people hooked on a new mode of living? I think we could. And actually, Catherine Malibu talks about this. She's got an essay called um, something about the Anthropocene. And she doesn't directly link it to addiction, but addiction certainly comes in, where she just says, we need new habits and a, a, a new way of living for the Anthropocene. We might call it a new social contract. It's not impossible to create. It would just require the creation of new habits to get us ingrained in a new kind of social contract that's sufficiently powerful to wrest us out of the miseries of the old one. But given that we're miserable, how hard can it be to tempt us out of it? But again, that's, that is the question of addiction, isn't it? You know why are people so easy to cling happy to cling to something that makes them miserable well because it's got that familiarity it's got the security i guess Slavoj Žižek would call it clinging to one's resource although i've got um, concerns about that kind of formulation yeah mary um so just following up on that um I'm really interested in the concept that the whole idea of intoxication. So I just want to go back to that a bit. So would you say if we can be addicted to anything, can we also be intoxicated by anything? Um, what's, what's the, I'm trying to understand how intoxication links in to. I don't want, I, I want to be quite careful here. And I realize that I've fudged it a little bit because I certainly don't want to say that 
they're exactly the same kind of um, mechanism going on neurologically here. So what we have with the dopamine system is that something that has proved rewarding will get tagged as a memory that we want to repeat. So intoxication is in no way uh, equivalent to addiction. We have got billions of people across the world who have had, had plenty of experience of intoxication without them ever leading into anything uh, addictive. Um, but what can happen is that we get a sufficiently powerful intoxicating experience. And in many cases, that can be enough to trigger somebody to seek um, repetitions. Um, that can't... So anything that triggers dopamine can be addictive. Exactly. Can anything be intoxicating? I don't know. So one of the, the, the kind of themes, you saw it in some lingering um, slide headers that I hadn't sufficiently uh, removed from, from other presentations where I've used the, the same pictures and the like. There's a, a, a whole question about the relationship between um, addiction, uh, intoxication and entropy and negentropy here um, and, 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 and thermodynamics. One of the things that we'd link to intoxication is states of mental entropy that have been variously described from people like Jung and Csikszentmihalyi to um, Ian Carhart Harris and before he went uh, a little off, off track, Jordan Peterson. I say a little, I'm, I'm, I'm understating it. Um, but intoxication seems to involve some kind of regression to um, a, a more what we called critical state of consciousness, i.e. one where um, we seem more on the brink of some kind of disintegration or, or regression to uh, a, a more primordial state of consciousness that is less able to navigate its way around the world. Um, do I think that we can get intoxicated by rubbing door handles or not eating? No, I don't think so. I think there we do need to make sharp distinctions between um, intoxication and uh, addiction. I think one of the things that's interesting, if you go back to Plato, when, so when, when Plato, and this comes back to your earlier question, um, because you're right that there wasn't really, a, there wasn't a discourse of, of addiction um, in, in ancient Greece. Although very interestingly, Julian James in that fantastically bizarre book on um, the history of consciousness in terms of the bicameral mind, where he, he argues that basically we were all schizophrenic until writing came along and, uh, and, and organized the, the, the left hemisphere of the brain so that the, the voice that was once the gods now becomes the voice of the internal writer. Um, he happens, argues that this happens at the time of the Mycenaean Empire uh, before Linear B goes missing. Um, but one of the things that, that one can argue about um, the, the, the dawn of the age of writing is that suddenly it enables us to distinguish between um, the discourse of rationality and the discourse of desire at the level of phenomenological experience that means that we start to get uh, something akin to an experience of addiction at around the time that, that, that Plato is writing. But Plato will describe the Greek polis as being drunk. And what he means by the Greek polis being drunk is that you have got people going in, filibustering, uh, doing whatever it takes to uh, get their points through. They're no longer arguing on the basis of truth. They're arguing on the basis of, frankly, a kind of entertainment value or therapeutic value. You know, They're no longer arguing towards uh, uh, the aim of, of reaching some kind of consensus. They are simply um, 
indulging in sophistry to, to their own ends. Um, so yeah, we've got this messy distinction throughout between um, intoxication and addiction. And you're right that they certainly would benefit from a, a sharper, uh, clearer um, differentiation. How, how far that um, differentiation uh, would ultimately succeed, I'm not sure, because we do get to the point um, where do people ever get drunk on digital screens and iPads? I don't know, but that certainly the point where you're passing from intoxication to addiction in something like heroin. I have no experience whatsoever of heroin, um, apart from post-surgical uh, morphine and the like. Um, uh, uh, you'd think that there has to be some point where um, intoxication gets replaced by uh, addiction there, but again, it's, it's not something I can really comment on. Well, thank you, Mary, for the question. Thank you, Gerald, for the answer. There, there, there is probably time for one uh, brief question or interjection, if anyone has one. I certainly do, but I've, I've already had my fair crack, so I want to hold back if anyone else has anything to say. Uh, Florian. Yeah, hi. Thanks again, Gerald, for your very interesting talk. Um, I'm still uh, trying to get my head around what's what's going on on uh, these days and uh, especially why why um what might be so stressful today that causes these these retreats that you were talking about and one thing i was just thinking about and i was wondering uh if you you think this has anything to do anything to do with the whole picture or with the um the storyline of your talk was that the idea of the social contract itself has become very demanding and perhaps in many ways too demanding, which could be in itself a cause for these retreats. So as I understand it for, um, for, the, for, for a very long time in human history, you know, the social contract or social order was mostly about, um, we need some common knowledge to coordinate on stable cooperative norms. But nowadays we have this idea with uh, democratic thinking and the importance of the individual that there should be much more. There should be a public sphere where there's a common, there's a, a story that justifies social order to everybody that ideally everybody can understand. And this kind of, uh, this kind of justification to, to everybody is reproduced again and again and should actually take place in the, uh, in the public political sphere, not only on local level, but now all the way up to global level with global political institutions. And this whole idea of public reason, you might, you might say, is very demanding. And I think we see it in respect to reality, fail it again and again. And I was just wondering if you think that this this way in which the whole ideal of the social contract evolved itself could be reason for people now uh, turning to to retreat. This is a this is a really interesting idea. The question of scale, um, and you make me think. Repose the question: Is it is it that the public sphere has fallen apart, or is it that it has become so huge and demanding that we can no longer cope with it? I think of Jacques Derrida here, who said that responsibility has to be responsibility for more than we're we're causal of uh, you know we can't do with what Chris used to call that culture of insurance coming from from Paul Ricoeur 
Um, because we look at these demands for, to, to respond that are acting on us now, they're just impossible. And we go back to something like Dunbar's number, or the idea that we need a kind of scale of locality or an immunological sphere within which our responsibility becomes meaningful and manageable so that we're not you know, constantly feeling that we have to sell our bed and sell, send the proceeds to Ukraine. Or, you know, we've got this, this, this phenomenon of, of climate porn. I don't know if anyone's heard of climate porn, but it's been shown that, uh, that looking at pictures of emaciated uh, polar bears floating on icebergs has exactly the type of same effect on the brain as watching pornography, where it makes you feel kind of thrilled, but then exhausted and burned out and unable to respond. It is the absolute um, opposite of what you want to do to trigger responses, to trigger a response from people. You have to show them kind of successful projects of how to manage expectations and how to manage small scale environmental achievable goals. Um, I, things that make you feel empowered, not things that leave you miserable and burned out and depressed. So in, in that experience, to that extent, I think you're entirely right that the kind of globalization of the media so that we're constantly experiencing everything. It's really interesting here. You go back to the evolution of, um, of the genus Homo. We evolved to deal with threats that were about the size of a woolly mammoth in the middle distance. We are not evolutionarily equipped to deal with abstract concepts um, like climate collapse and so on. And there is a real question of manageability and just how much we're physiologically capable of processing here. Um, and you're right that, you know, so this is where someone like Bernard Stiegler would say that, that what we need is to reinvent globalization, but on the basis of network localities. Um, so you're, in other words, where you're, reinscribing multiple low-level social contracts um, and then building a whole out of a federation of, of, of micro worlds rather than you know you make me think of what exactly what I tell students is terrible essay technique you can't begin with everything and try and shove it into something little it's not manageable if you're writing about a novel or a book you choose one or two episodes that you think serve as microcosms as a whole and from which you can build outwards. Otherwise, there's just no way of, of, of dealing with the scale of it. I think that's, I think that's a really excellent point about the, just the magnitude of, of responsibility here. It, it becomes unmanageable. And what we need is a, a more delimited sense of, of the spheres within which we can be expected to respond. Wonderful, thank you. Um, we we have run out of time. Just before we collectively uh, thank Gerald for, for the huge generosity that he's shown with uh, with time and with engaging so fully with every question that was asked today, can I just um, draw people's attention to the next of these events? I'm sharing a link here in the chat. Uh, next Thursday, so Thursday the 17th of March, same time, uh, Jessica White from the University of New South Wales will be uh, speaking to the title Cultivating the State of Nature, Neoliberal Statecraft as Gardening. And there's a link to register um, in, the, uh, in the link that I've just shared there on the chat. Um, please do join with me in, in acknowledging our, our collective thanks and um, uh, huge gratitude for, for Gerald's generosity and time. Thank you, Gerald.
Thank you so much. It's been a fantastic way to start the day.